Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. I believe we are in the midst of a transgender moral panic, where only a decade ago, very few people sought what used to be called sex change. Today, the number seeking, quote, transition is becoming a flood. It is one thing when adults decide to alter their bodies, but it is quite another to promote radical gender-affirming care in children. And yet the American medical establishment and the Biden administration state that the science in this regard is settled and that immediate affirmation is the humane public policy to caring for such patients, including giving children puberty-blocking hormones and serious surgeries such as mastectomies. But is it? Recently, the United Kingdom, France, Sweden, and Finland have hit the brakes on immediate gender affirmation in children, to the point that the UK closed down its largest gender clinic as unsafe for patients. The National Health Service concluded that instead of encouraging transition, medics should take a watchful approach and that doctors should be mindful of the risks of an inappropriate gender transition and the difficulties that the child may experience in returning to the original gender role. This return is known as detransitioning, a phenomenon that receives far too little attention in the United States. But my guest today is doing something about that. She directed, co-wrote, and co-produced an important documentary, The Detransition Diaries, Saving Our Sisters. Jennifer Lal is a documentarian and founder and president of the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network. Lal's writings have appeared in various publications, including Cambridge University Press, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Dallas Morning News, and the American Journal of Bioethics. As a field expert, she is routinely interviewed on radio and television, including ABC, CBS, PBS, and NPR. Jennifer, welcome back to Humanize. Thanks, Wesley. It's great to be with you again. Before we begin our conversation, let's listen to a quick clip from the film. Right after the surgery, I had been hit with these like awful feelings of having made like a huge mistake, like undeniable, just like, oh no, like, what have I done? You know, I was like looking down at my body and seeing like this, like these like weeping gashes on my chest and just having like the most awful feeling. Jennifer, that's powerful stuff. What got you interested in the issue of transgenderism generally and detransitioning specifically? 
Yeah, well, Wesley, you and I have known each other a long time. And you know, in a prior life, I was a pediatric critical care nurse for many, many years. So I was always interested in medical ethics and the treatment of people at the hands of medicine. And, you know, I've made several films. Last year, we made Transmission, What's the Rush to Reassign Gender, which was a deep dive looking at the debate around the role of medicine in gender dysphoric kids. Um, and what we found when we released tr the, the Transmission film last year is that people really resonated with the stories that we included from two detransitioners in that film. You know, you can't deny a personal story. Um, you can't deny that, you know, what people say with their experiences, you can't say that didn't happen to you. And we really got into this space because a lot of my work in the past has been in the space of reproductive medicine and the films that we've made in surrogacy and egg donation and sperm donation. And we found out that children before they're medicalized and surgicalized are offered fertility preservation. So if a little boy um, wants to become a girl, he can bank and freeze a sperm. So that later after he's transitioned, and I use quotes because I don't think you can transition, he can use his sperm to have children. And the same with little girls. They're offered, you want to freeze and bank your eggs so that when you become a man, you can still have genetically related children. And that's when we said, okay, we're going to get into the space. You know, I'm a nurse. I was a pediatric nurse. And I, and I see where this is all headed. And it's, it is not good. What kind of uh, research went into producing the film? Uh, the most recent film, The Detransition Diaries? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, well, a lot of, you know, a lot of just time on the internet, you know, reading people's stories, listening, you know, there's a growing number of detransitioners. I've been following the subreddit group, which is, you know, 40,000 members strong and growing of people who now, you know, regret their decision to transition. Um, we really wanted to focus on women. That's why it's saving our sisters because we see the phenomenon, you know, this new social contagion that's grabbing our young girls who think that they're born in the wrong body. So it was intentional as an editorial filmmaker to make that decision to only focus on girls, even though we know that men, boys also do detransition. Um, but yeah, that was, you know, we just thought we really need to uh, amplify the voices of people who regret. Because right now all you're hearing is that we have to affirm if we don't affirm these people, they're going to kill themselves, they're going to commit suicide. We see what's coming out of the White House. We see what's coming out at the state levels where you have more red conservative states that are banning this, more liberal states like California is now a sanctuary state. So children, minors can come to California for their gender affirmation therapies. Um, and so all of that's just sort of rolled into we, we need to, you know, put our voice and our, our footprint um, into into this this big debate, um, which I just think is going to leave lots of damaged people in the wake. What I liked about the film is you don't say a word. You don't actually uh, have a narration. It's basically three women who at one point believed they were male describing their experiences and the consequences thereof. How did you find these young women? There's three of them. And, and uh, where were these interviews conducted? Yeah, well, and there are many of them, but we selected these three women in particular because they're, they were very outspoken. They were already sort of prominent figures in the, the public discourse around, you know, experiencing regret over their decision. Um, 
we they're very articulate. You know, you've seen the film. They don't come across as mean or vindictive. Um, I think the audience really resonates with them. They're truth tellers. You know, you you listen to these women's stories and you believe them. You don't feel like they're you know they're selling you something. So it's important not just to make a film, but have the right people on camera. You you know that, that that's very important. Um, and they're brave. You know, a lot of detransitioners want to speak out and have talked to me privately, um, but they don't want to go public because, you know, we see what happens. You, you know, they, the trans activists want to destroy your life. Uh, Grace, who you, you read the clip, you, you, listened, you know, showed the clip. Um, she's the one that actually had the double mastectomy. She lives in New York City. So we traveled to New York. Helena lives in the Midwest. Um, and then Kat, the other woman who's in the film, who actually produced an original song that she sings in the film, uh, lives in California. So it was kind of nice demographically to have, you know, this isn't, isn't in the red states. This isn't just in the blue states. It's happening all around the United States. You know, I noticed in um, listening to these young women tell their stories that they all had experienced kind of mental health issues or emotional trauma. Uh, I, I think one or two had, had were anorexic uh, and they were um, going through the anxiety that I think a lot of uh, young women may feel because of the pressure of their, you know, having bodies that are kind of, um, what shall we say, objectified and so forth. Um, it, one of the women said, if you don't fit in, that's a sign you're a trans is, is the message they received. Is that a common issue that if, a, if a boy or a girl, um, and I know I didn't feel like I fit in when I was a early teenager, does, are, are people like that being basically told, well, your issue is your trans. Absolutely. Well, for one, all of our young people today are spending way too much on time on social media. Yes. And when you are sort of a young, vulnerable person, you naturally will gravitate toward other sites that are, you know, like-minded sites. And so they do spend a lot of time in groups that are, um, you know, gender non-conforming, non-binary, you know, the, the LGBTQ plus queer um, space. So they're just hearing this, you know, that, you know, the biology is irrelevant. It's meaningless that there's not just two sexes, you know, that there's this fluidity and this, you know, deconstructing of the binary. And we know that young people have always had these issues. Like you said, you, me, I, I'm really tall. And I was really tall as a little girl. I was like the freak in this you know, school. I used to want to be the short girl, but you know, I was, you know, five, seven in third grade. <laughs> um, and, you know, back to my pediatric days, you know, it used to be girls overwhelmingly were more prone to anorexia and bulimia. You know, we'd see those girls on the hospital, you know, girls are more prone to cutting. And again, I'm not excluding boys, but when you look at the demographics and the numbers, you know, girls are just more sensitive to being accepted physically and um, so this is sort of the new, the new thing, you know, not to say that we're not having anorexic girls and bulimic girls or girls that are still cutting, but it's just part of the expansion of, I, I, I feel discomfort and that could be because of trauma. It could be because of abuse. It could be because of. But I think there's a difference. You didn't have adults encouraging anorexia. You didn't have adults encouraging cutting. But you do have adults encouraging transitioning. And, and that is the new pivot, because you're right. We would see those kids in the hospital before because there was something wrong with them. You know, we had to help them so that they became comfortable with their body. And we would never tell a starving 
70 pound young girl, yes, you're fat. We wouldn't affirm that. We would. You wouldn't give them uh, the surgery that makes them lose weight. Yeah, we wouldn't do, you know, take out their stomach. Yes. Um, And so that is the problem with, and, you know, we can get into why has that happened, but, you know, you know, you've written the culture of death. Uh, You know, we know what's happened to medicine and the co-opting and the corruption of medicine. So back in the days when we would see children in the hospital that were perhaps born with an extra X or an extra Y chromosome, you know, what we call ambiguous genitalia, or those kind of issues. It was always a watchful waiting approach. It was never rush these children to surgery. And it was always the doctors that were holding back that rush. Parents were sometimes wanting to rush. If you had a baby that was born, um, you know, with, with intersex, you know, parents were wanting, you know, to sell, to sell their friends. We had a boy, we had a girl, you know, they're wanting to pick a name and the doctor. But that physical condition is not what we're talking about here. Correct. But I'm just saying medicine still back then was affirming the watchful waiting approach yeah. as the best practice in medicine. Um, it strikes me that that children today have a lot less defense around them. You've got this incredible social media, which is becoming the peer group, as opposed to necessarily, let's say, your girlfriends in, in eighth grade. Uh, you've got some teachers, apparently, from what I'm reading, and maybe you know more than I do, who are actually promoting this and keeping it secret from parents, you've got the medical establishment that has become ideological on this reg- in this regard, and a government, as you mentioned in California, they're going to actually uh, uh, give a sanctuary to uh, children who seek uh, gender affirmation, even if um, let's say another state has given custody to a parent who refuses. So you, you've you taken away, unlike with anorexia or some of these other kinds of conditions, defenses from adults that protect children. And they're now pushing in some regard, if not actively, but certainly through um, praising with faint damnation, the idea that this is your problem, that you are transgender and that your life, as one of the girls said in the uh young women said in the film that uh, this this is supposed to make it all better. Yeah, and that is really frightening because all of the gatekeepers, you know, you mentioned school Gatekeepers, teachers. that's the right term, right. Yeah, the gatekeepers normally are standing to protect children, um, you know, which are the teachers. And you're correct that the teachers are affirming children often behind their parents' backs. You know, they're allowing children to change their name and use different pronouns without telling parents. You know, the physicians who used to be, you know, standing there protecting children, you know, do no harm, are now, you know, all the way down from like the American Academy of Pediatrics to the Pediatric Endocrine Society, you know, have, you know, policies endorsing gender affirmation, you know, as the first step to treating these children. And now we have our lawmakers um, you know, from, you know, the day, first day that I believe it was the first day that Biden was in office, he signed the, you know, the Equality Act, which isn't about equality at all. <laughs> it's about, you know, ruining, ruining people's bodies. It's about allowing men in women's prisons. You know, it's about allowing men to compete in women's sports in the name of equality. And, you know, that's just, yeah, he, he signed an executive order. The Equality Act would do that uh, legislatively. It's passed the House, but has not passed the Senate. But he did sign an executive order to that effect. Um, let's define our terms real quickly. What is transgender? 
Well, if you, I don't believe it's a, a true term, but, right, trans- but, but, the, but we, we, it is in use. So uh, what do they mean when they use the term transgender? But as it's used, it's to mean that you can change your sex. You know, if you were a man or a boy and you all of a sudden just call yourself a girl, you know, you can do that. And you don't have to medically or surgically do that. Right. So you can just cross dress. You can just change your name. You can just change your pronouns or you can go all the way to the far extreme of having, you know, a phalloplasty or neovagina and mastectomy. You can do the whole surgical thing. That's what transgender so it's, it's basically a person who was born one sex, the term that I refuse to use is assigned at birth, um, but they have come to identify or believe they're a different sex. Correct. Uh, what is the term non gender nonconforming? Well, those are people that reject the binaries, right? You know, they don't. <laughs> Which means? <laughs> they, don't, they don't accept that there's male or female. So they don't okay. conform to, to being male or or female. They just reject that as a concept. So when I was growing up, there were some girls who were were called tomboys and that was not men as a pejorative. I mean, they were girls who, who were more active in sports and so forth. And, uh, there were also more effeminate boys that didn't have a term and, and that had, uh, uh, less, uh, support. But is that what we're talking about? Uh, gender non-conforming, meaning that the the child doesn't conform to the uh, stereotypical uh, interests and behaviors of of a boy or a girl. Well, I, I wish it did mean that today, because I think we would do we would better serve society and our children if we just allowed boys to be more feminine and, and girls to be more. Yes, positive. I agree with that. Yeah, but when you in today's vernacular. It's not, that's not what people are talking about. They really are rejecting these rigid male, female. And in fact, they're actually kind of imposing the stereotype. So, you know, if a man wants to be more feminine, they don't just say, well, be a feminine man. They say, well, you're a woman. Yeah. And, and uh, often uh, will uh, mimic the most uh, uh, stereotypical uh, approaches to being a woman. Well, yes, we see that with the men that are in the Biden administration. I mean, how many women really wear six-inch red high heels just to work in yeah. the White House? <laughs> but, you know, they, they do go to the extreme. The, the redder the dress, the redder the lipstick, the redder and higher the heels. <laughs> yeah. What is pansexual? I'm blanking. That seems it's to be a catch-all phrase for whatever you think is going on, and, and you're not going to allow yourself to be identified as anything in particular. I was going to say it's the word salad. <laughs> it really is. This is kind of the word salad. Whatever you want it to mean is what it means. That's right. So let's talk about uh, what they call gender-affirming care um, that children, we are told, are supposed to receive. It starts apparently with social affirmation. What is that? Yeah, we just uh, agree that all of a sudden this person you've known their whole life as a male, for example, and they just show up one day and they say, I'm female now. We all just have to go, okay, nice And we to have to you. use the uh, the name that this that the boy has chosen uh, for. You can't use their dead name, right? The, the, that's right, the dead name. And we have to supposedly use pronouns that uh, conform with how the child identifies. Because you can't misgender them. So this is just to... to point something out. This is not an objective medical condition like cancer that you can test for. This is entirely subjective and internal, correct? Correct. If there's DNA evidence, blood evidence, they're looking for a man or a woman. They're not looking for how somebody identifies. 
Right. So that's a the, the how I identify is not something that can be objectively determined. It's it's always going to be on the basis of the subjective emotional view of the person claiming that they are not the sex they were born. Exactly. It's it's absurd, isn't it, that we're having this conversation? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, as we both noticed, nothing is absurd today. Uh, what is puberty blocking? Well, pu puberty blocking is part of the rush, right? We want to rush in and before this child starts developing a male or a female body that thinks that they're born in the wrong body, we want to block that process. And, so you're going to artificially prevent a natural uh, maturation uh, into adolescence uh, that would prevent the development of secondary sex characteristics. Correct. And it's often done at what's called Tanner stage two, because there's different levels of puberty. And at Tanner stage two is when little girls start developing breast buds, for example. Mm -hmm. Boys and girls start developing pubic hair. The boy's voice starts cracking and changing. And it's typically done then. And there, it's sold as buying time, it's sold as it can be temporarily stopped if the person changes their mind and wakes up one day and realizes that they don't want to transition. Um, and that is not true. That is not true. Those, these are damaged, you know, bodies and organs. And, and it's a damaged process. I mean, human development from, you know, zygote, blastocyte, all the way to old age, it's part of a, or just a, a, an, a, an intentional, on-purpose, good, n normal human body development. This is the first time that I remember, and there may be other examples that don't come to mind, that you're actually using medical means to interfere with healthy body processes. It's, well, especially in children. I mean, we've been doing mastectomies on adults, and those are healthy bod bodily, you know, when you have breasts that aren't diseased, um, when you remove testicles and, you know, penises off of healthy men. You know, but with, with children, this is really uh, quite alarming. Um, yeah, it, it, it really is. And, and it can cause a, a, a problem with bone formation and it can cause problem with brain development. And also, you know, they say, well, these drugs have been used for decades. Well, they have not been used in this way for decades. This is an off-label use. They've been used to treat pathologies in puberty, and those were often quite temporary. Yeah, like precocious puberty, which is when little children enter puberty at a very, very young age, and it would truly be used temporarily. Even that is controversial, though, um, because in the spectrum of normal, you know, it was normal that I was a tall third grader. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's normal. When we, you know, we, we worry about short stature, and we want to treat short stature because heaven forbid we have short children. Um, so it is it is still controversial to use it in normal processes like precocious puberty but but it um, was approved by the fda for that purpose not that i i know of was it i think it's only been approved for first it was end-stage prostate cancer then it was endometriosis for women well you know better than i do that yeah. i always thought maybe it was used for that other purpose but i know that it has not been used and approved for the purpose of puberty blocking yes and it's used egg donors are all, almost always put on lupron as well hmm because when you think of blocking puberty in the in the mature egg donor woman, Lupron puts the puts the um, ovaries to sleep, puts them into a medical menopause. So sort of like blocking puberty, which we're going to do permanently. But in the case of the egg donor, she takes it for a short period of time just to put her ovaries to sleep in the beginning of the cycle in the process of selling her eggs.
And it's used off-label there, too. And if you saw in the FDA recently, they issued a new warning with Lupron and puberty blockers in children with, um, with pressure in the brain. And wow. two of the women I've interviewed in my exploitation film had massive stroke. And were on wow. Which is stroke, we know, is pressure in the brain. Wow. They're playing with fire, Wesley, on children. Yeah, well, they're, they're certainly uh, doing things that are not medically necessary and, and can be harmful. And, and, and they're not treating a pathology. They're treating an internal, um, perhaps, obsession or certainly ideation. It's, yeah, not a, it, it's not a physical condition that they're treating except health, healthy bodies. That's what they're finding unacceptable. What is cross-hormone administration? Well, sometimes it's also called wrong sex or cross-sex hormone. So it's basically putting abnormal dosage of estrogen, if you will, in a man's body or testosterone in a woman's body. So the, the three women in your film all received testosterone, and that was to masculinize their themselves during, uh, during the process, correct? Yeah, voice change, facial hair. Um, and it should be noted that two of them on camera said that they basically got it at Planned Parenthood with, you know, 30 minutes on the phone with a stranger. Without so actually meeting the doctors who prescribed the testosterone or approved the mastectomy in that one case. Yeah, which again, as a nurse, it appalls me because these young girls are sent home, they go to CVS, for example, and they get a bag of drugs with needles and they have to mix and draw you know, and inject themselves with medication. I had to take a class in nursing school on how to give an injection. <laughs> and we're giving, you know, 14-year-old girls, here, go home and shoot yourself up with this. And I just go, what, what is going on with medicine? Yeah, it, it, it's ideological. Um, there's such a thing as bottom surgery, um, which we know what that is. That is uh, uh, turning, taking off, castrating a boy, uh, and uh, who's a transgender woman or a girl he thinks or she thinks and uh, fashioning a vagina and and also uh, destroying a, a woman's vagina and fashioning a penis. Um, is that done on minors? I know it's done on adults, but is it done on minors? I want to say it's probably been done on minors. What you more commonly see done on minors is the double mastectomy, which is the top surgery. Um, yeah, I was I was sent. Yeah, I was sent a um, uh, a source sent me the uh, URL, the website for Seattle uh, Children's Hospital Gender Clinic, and I'll get into a little bit about what they do do in, in a minute. But they don't do uh, genital surgeries until somebody is eighteen. Which even so then, hopefully, hopefully that's across the board. Although I have heard stories of children having gender um, affirming uh, uh, genital surgeries. Uh, as you said, they do um, mastectomies. That's called top surgery, correct? Correct. And I found uh, recently there was a study by Van Vanderbilt University doctors uh, that found that there were only about 100 of these surgeries performed in 2016 on minor children, after which they steadily became more popular uh, surpassing uh, 489 in 2019, and that's before this really took off. So I would suggest that the number is over a thousand today, and the median age of the children receiving these top surgeries or mastectomies was 16, which means that half of the girls 
who had their breasts removed were under the age of 16, as low as 12. Yeah, that's frightening. And part, part of what's driving that increase, I think, not only is the affirmation approach model only, but the fact that young girls use breast binders. And if you talk to young girls that bind their breasts, they talk about how it's uncomfortable. I'm sure. <laughs> you can imagine wearing, you know, a compression thing and, you know, it's very, very uncomfortable. In the summertime, it's really hot, you know, to, to bind your breasts. Um, so, you know, in their minds, it just seems like the solution is to have the top surgery and have them. And it's, you know, the top surgery is much different than a woman who, say, has breast cancer and has to have a mastectomy. Um, because part of the top surgery for these young girls is the, the masculinization of the, the, the chest. Yes. So, you know, so it's not just removing unhealthy, abnormal breast tissue, but it's doing more, you know. Well, you're, you're removing healthy, developing breasts. Correct. And one of the uh, women you interviewed uh, had a mastectomy. And here's what she said about that. I also don't really feel like a man. I just feel like a woman who has had her breasts cut off. Wow, that's raw. There are other procedures that are done on children, too. Uh, face procedures. And when I was sent the uh, Seattle uh, Children's Hospital uh, information, here's what they had on their website about facial surgeries. Quote, many different procedures can change the shape of the face to look more feminine or masculine. These are sometimes called facial feminization surgery or facial masculinization surgery. They include forehead reduction, forehead contouring or augmentation, and uh, brow changes and so forth. You're talking about very serious facial surgeries on children whose faces are still developing. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's, it's gotten so extreme that um, San Francisco and other agencies, but one, uh, one prominent facility in San Francisco offers what's now called nullification surgery. I've not heard of that. It's, some, it's when people male or female, they have so much dysphoria looking at their body that everything is removed and all that's left is a hole to urinate and to poop by. Uh. And everything else is removed, sewn up and shut. It's called nullification surgery. And it's sort of, you know, pushing that envelope to not just, you know, plastic surgery to masculinize or feminize the face, not just, you know, surgery to remove breasts and, and genitalia, but totally nullifying any kind of um, sexual body parts. <laughs> I'm not usually speechless, but that doctors would do that is really stunning to me. Um, yeah. uh, the the uh, website that I described also discusses surgery that can make the Adam's apple less visible or more visible, liposuction and body contouring, again, on children whose bodies are developing. Um I, I'm I to me this is abusive, but uh, right now, according to uh, the establishment medical thinking, this is gender affirming care and humane and comp and compassionate. And I I don't know how uh, we get we we come back from that until and unless this moral panic stops. Well, and you had a piece that I just read this morning too, based on the New York uh, New England Journal of Medicine, that they're now pushing this as a right. Not, oh, yeah, just the, the, practice, not just standard of care, but it's a right. It's a right to be, to be, and it wasn't just limited to children, this article. It was in the um, Journal of, of uh, Medical Ethics 
that said that there is an absolute right akin to the right, right to religious freedom. And uh, I will put the article that I wrote about that in the in the notes to this interview, if people want to read it. Parents are afraid of losing their children if they don't buy into this, because parents are abusive if they don't affirm their children and accept. And you're beginning to see some judges actually taking away custody from parents because they refuse to go along with gender affirming care. Yes. And there is one gentleman in our film last year, the transmission, what's the rush to reassign gender, who is in one of those battles with his, you know, his son and and the mother of the son's, you know, uh, over because the mother is very much affirming. It's the, it's the younger case in Texas too. Um, It's, it's Ted Hudaka out in California. He hasn't seen his son for over two years because he won't affirm his son is now a girl and the judge lets him see his other son. So he's not an unfit parent. Because why would you be allowed to see one of your children and not the other? Um, but he's not allowed to see his, I think his son is 16 or 17 now, um, because he won't affirm that his son is a girl. It's scary. Um, this is very extensive work. Is this a case of follow the money in terms of the medical establishment? Well, that's certainly a, a big part of it is following the money. You know, this is lucrative, you know, double mastectomies, all this cosmetic type surgery we've been talking about on the face and the body, um, puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones for life. You have a patient for life, you've medicalized them, surgicalized them, but they want to have children later on, they're going to need the fertility doctors. So there's certainly a lot of money. But I think a lot of this came about also in just shifts in academic Um, circles. You know, we used to have women's studies, and then we had gender studies, and now we have queer studies. You know, so, you know, academia has shifted in in this this thinking and promoting this this ideology. Um, You know, big corporations have hopped on the bandwagon. So, you know, gay pride, you know, used to be a week or a day, and now it's a month. And this whole month of, you know, we have, you know, gay pride everywhere in, in media. And, and for why, why the, I don't, I can't understand what is the motivation for politicians. Um, and of course we have politicians that are pushing back on this, but um, I don't really understand what's driving them except for just ideological. They want to be on the right side of history in their minds. I think this is the right side. We've already talked a little bit about this, but this strikes me as being um, family shattering stuff. I mean, I've known people whose children have uh, suddenly declared these issues, and it, it, it totally turns a family upside down. And uh, parents are put in the position of they want to do what's right for their kids. They're being told by some people, oh, go affirmation, affirmation, affirmation. They're told by others, well, this is wrong. And I think it puts families who, which may already be having difficulties with regard to economic issues and so forth in a terrible conundrum because it, it turns um, parenting into a, a conflict or adversarial relationship. Yeah. And we're in the olden days and not that the olden days were, I want to glamorize them, but in the olden days, parents had, you know, teacher support. They had support from their pediatrician. They had support from their local community. And now they're the bad guys because the whole world seems to be affirming and that you are a terrible parent if you don't do this. I mean, it's putting a strain on marriages. You know, when, you know, when one 
you know, you don't agree on how to address this. Do we allow our child to, you know, do we go by their pronouns? You know, if my child today was 15 or 14 and came home and said this, I wouldn't affirm them. I would refuse to use their new name. I would refuse to, you know, I would misgender them because <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to buy into the, you know, the, the lie and, and the, you know, the nonsense. So it's, yeah, it's really putting, and it puts a strain on other children in the family. Because yeah. this one child sort of sucks up all the energy and the air in the room because all the focus from the parents is now on this one child who's in crisis um, and other children sort of, you know, get ignored or fall by the wayside. We have, we've talked mostly about girls here. And I do think that um, in recent years, the focus of this movement has been on convincing girls that they're not female. Um, but and by the way, we will be putting a, a um, link to your other film that you addressed earlier in the in the program notes. How is it different for boys, if at all? You mean to transition or to yeah, just gender affirmation and the pressures that boys might be facing. Well, you know, I I, I think I want to step back more broadly and say, you know, what is happening with men or boys? Uh, and and I don't want to say whatever what I'm about to say also applies to girls, but perhaps more so applies to boys. Pornography, right? There's a lot of pornography. And unfortunately, kids have access to things that they should never be seeing at young ages. So I think, you know, we have to understand the impact of pornography. You know, men are more prone to fetishes, mm -hmm. what we call autogynephilia, being mm -hmm. aroused by walking around in women's lingeries. And, women's, you know, I think what we see in the White House is, male fetish on full display and we're supposed to just applaud it and celebrate it. You're talking about some of the staff, not the president, <laughs> just yeah. to be clear. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although, <laughs> never, I better not say anything. I'll stop yeah. there. But yeah. So, you know, those kind of things apply more to our boys or men that don't apply to, you know, you don't see on a onogynephilic women who get sexually aroused by walking around and, construction boots and yeah. hard hats. <laughs> um, but I do think, you know, the whole surgical process and the cross-sex hormones is rough on their bodies, you know, just as a medical, you know, you, I've, I've interviewed, you know, men that have had their penises and their scrotums removed, their testicles removed, you know, that is rough surgery. And, you know, especially when they try to detransition, uh, you, you talk about, you know, you have to hear grueling things about, you know, dilations that have to be done in order to be able to urinate, yeah. you know, and things like that, you know, just, you know, and, and Nugent about how, because he took a whole part of his arm, muscle and skin to create his you know, pseudo fake penis you know, he has pubic, he has hair that you have normally growing on your arm. This inside his urethra and gets infected. And because you don't, you shouldn't have hair growing inside a urethra, but you shouldn't also use your arm to create a pseudo penis. So, so these surgeries actually mutilating in, in more than one way. And also I would point out that these bottom surgeries leave uh, the person who received them sterile and uh, almost always sexually dysfunctional. Correct. I mean, one famous prominent surgeon in the in California Bay Area, Dr. Marcy Bowers, who's actually a man, but presents as a woman, um, was on record at a conference at Duke University, which is on online. So you could hear her speak, him speak, and says that if you block puberty at Tanner stage two, Dr. Bowers has never seen that person be able to achieve orgasm. Well, that's a that's a terrible cost to pay. 
Uh, and is that something that's part of informed consent? And do parents really have should have the right and the ability to rob their child of any kind of you know sexual pleasure as an adult? Yeah. Do they even know that? Probably not. You know, the transgender community can get very nasty to its critics. Um, and uh, they've been really targeting feminists, actually. Uh, who argue that sex is a real thing. In fact, there's a term called TERF, T-E-R-F. Are you a TERF and what is a TERF? I am a TERF. I actually have my TERF pin right here on my desk. I'm a proud TERF. Trans-exclusionary radical feminists. You know, you, you know, these are women who say, absolutely no, I will never, ever believe that you are what you say you are. If you're a man and you say you're a woman, you, you are not a woman. You are not welcome in in women's spaces. You're not welcome to compete in women's sports or be in our prisons or our women's shelters. Um, and so, you know, we, we make no exception, you know. And so the trans activists hate and love to call you a turf. They hate turfs and they love to call you a turf. Um, so, and they have been. I mean, I've been following Kelly J. Keene, who's one of the experts in the Detransition Diaries, and she's making her way across the United States right now. She's a British women's rights campaigner, and she's making her way across the United States right now filming um, for her new documentary film that's coming out. I don't know when it's coming out, but she runs in Hyde Park in London, a speaker's corner. And it started out years ago and it's once a month and she just comes with her little box like you see in London and Speaker's Corner with her megaphone and she lets women speak. And that's her thing. Let women speak. Let women speak. And she's been traveling around the United States. And just last week, you know, she was in the Seattle, Tacoma, Washington area. And, uh, you know, a man tried to attack a woman and another woman had to intervene. One of her events had to be canceled. She was just down in Austin and she was posting pictures where she was surrounded by these amazing, strong Texas men you know, in Kevlar vests. And it's, it's gotten to the point where, you know, violence is being perpetrated, perpetrated against women who dare to let women speak and say only women can be women and men can never be women. And, and uh, J.K. Rowling has actually um, said that and has uh, been subjected to death threats and uh, was shunned by the three leads in the Harry Potter movies, which I just found utterly ungracious since they wouldn't even have careers if she hadn't written Harry Potter books. Yeah, she has been really kind of a hero to many of us. And it's sad because when you look in the United States, the National Organization for Women says things like, yes, men can be women. Um, La Leche League has jumped the shark and, you know, uses terms like chest feeders and men can breastfeed their babies. <laughs> Planned yeah. Parenthood is handing out wrong sex, cross sex hormones, believing that you can change your sexuality and your gender. And this has been happening more uh, in terms of women than men. The dehumanization of women by this movement has been stunning to behold. Yeah, it really, it really has. It's been sad on, on one hand, but... And how it, 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 on one hand, it seems like it happened so fast, but it's yeah. just been slowly creeping in. You know, when we like when we look at medicine, it's a slow creep of moving away from do no harm medicine. It was this slow creep in academia where we sort of, you know, in the spirit of marketplace of ideas, it, you know, entertain, you know, nonsensical things. 
Well, that's why I call it a moral panic. Let's get back to the um, to the younger people. Uh, we're told that we have to go with gender affirming care. Otherwise, as you mentioned earlier in the interview, uh, these kids will commit suicide. Is there really evidence that without gender affirming care, there's a greater tendency to suicide than if it is just an automatic kind of rush to, to affirm? No, there is no evidence. And in fact, there is more evidence that if you just leave children alone and get them proper, perhaps counseling, psychological support, they, they sort this all out. Um, one of the largest studies that's been done was done in Sweden. And there's a lot of studies that have been done, but they're bad studies. They don't follow people for a long enough period of time, or there's a lot of dropout. So they, you know, they start with a sample size of say 200. And by the time at the end of the study, they're down to a much smaller number because they lose people. Um, but the largest study that was done was done in Sweden. And we have to remember that Sweden, before they pause the brakes and, 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 you know, stop doing this like they've done recently was very affirming. Absolutely. Was a very affirming, progressive, you know, country. So it wasn't, you know, that these people had to live in the shadows. And there, that study actually showed that the suicide rate was higher once people did transition medically and surgically. So it didn't solve their their problems with their their bodily confusion or bodily disdain. And 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 that, that could be understandable because when you are told this is the solution. And post-surgery, you find that you're still depressed, you're still self-loathing, you're still going through mental health issues. I, I can see where that would cause additional despair because there's no place else to go. Yeah, and that all that, that bore out in the three women in our film story. You know, Grace was the one who woke up and looked down at her breast and went, holy heck, what have I done? Um, Kat was going making the steps toward top surgery and then maybe bottom surgery, but the testosterone was just ruining her, her, her singing voice and it wasn't sorting out her dysphoria. Same with Helena. Helena says on the film that she probably would have gone on and had the surgery, but the, the side effects of testosterone at such high doses in a woman's body made her, so she was hurting herself. She had to be hospitalized and put in a mental health facility because she was you know, having a mental breakdown from all this testosterone in her, in her body. Um, so she said, I wasn't, I didn't have my act together enough to deal with insurance and appointments to schedule all these surgeries. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> and um, are there any reliable studies on how many uh, people, teenagers or people in general who do uh, change their minds and detransition? Do we have any percentages? We don't. What we have right now is just sort of the anecdotal evidence, like what I alluded to earlier with this rapidly growing Reddit detransition community. Right. Um, one of the statistics I heard is it's growing by about 60 members a day. Um, you know, it started out several years ago, you know, with a few thousand and now it's over 40,000. Um, you know, we, we mentioned in the film, the 60 minutes expose on gender affirmation, gender care, and the fact that you know, 60 Minutes got so much backlash for daring to include the detransition voices. Um, the fact that many detransitioners don't, Chloe Cole, for example, she didn't you know, call up her doctor and say, oh, by the way, I want you to know, mark me down, I'm a detransitioner, I'm not doing this anymore. So a lot of them just aren't accounted for, or they just stay in, in, the, in the background for fear of, you know, having the trans activists. Well, it come sure seems to me that if we're going to go down this path, that before we <laughs> hit the you know, gas pedal, we should do very detailed and thorough studies 
on what's going on and and what the impact is on uh, particularly young people who go through this. Because as the NHS pointed out, often it's transitory. You may think that you're the other sex when you're 12 or 13 and you're socially inept or feel socially excluded. And then by the time you're 19, you realize, wait, I am the sex I was born. And if we intervene uh, during those years between that, you could ruin somebody's life forever. Yeah, and the NHS did a good job in that they commissioned what's called the CAS report, which was an independent report um, that was done by a, a pediatrician in England, Dr. CAS. And, you know, repeatedly, the, the data is, is, is weak. The data is paltry. The data is insufficient. The data is not good enough. We cannot do this gender-only affirmation approach. Um, and when you look at what Sweden and Finland and France has done to sort of pull back and, and pump the brakes, it's more about let's really get good assessments and get bring in mental health people as part of the process and, and reject this gender affirmation only. Because gender, gender affirmation only is puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, you're put on that path. And, and it's proven that once you start that path with children, they do move to the next stage. So this notion that, you know, it's just a pause to give us more time. That's not happening. It's you know, actually, they're, they're uh, it would, and then going on the wrong, the wrong sex hormones. Rather than a pause, it's actually a desire to push them in a particular direction is what you're saying. Yes. And, and, under and, the guise and I think, I don't think there's any denying that anymore. It's, it's, uh, these people are not coming forward as neutral. They're coming forward as advocates an activist to push a particular perspective. Yeah. And, you know, for our film last year, I actually interviewed Dr. Quentin Van, um, Quentin Van Meter, who is a pediatric endocrinologist in the Atlanta, Georgia area. And he studied at Johns Hopkins under Paul McHugh and, you know, Paul McHugh, and he was very influential in stopping the trans surgeries at, at Johns Hopkins, which is now full steam ahead. Um, but I asked Van Meter, why did he think there was such this rush? And again, it gets back to men. Mm-hmm. Men, you know, these gentlemen that work in the in the current administration, you know, would probably much be much happier if they looked like women. You know, it's that if we could block the puberty, we won't get big boned and we won't get deep voices and we won't have to hide our facial hair. You know, it's sort of let's just do it sooner so we can just avoid all that. Um, and he thought that that was one of the reasons that was driving this. Why are we doing this to children? It's uh, uh, adult uh, people who um, uh, transitioned but feel that they look too much like the sex they were born. And yeah, so I mean, they think they're helping children by keeping them from having that experience. Yeah. I mean, anybody who looks at Caitlyn Jenner goes, well, that's a man wearing a dress and a wig. Yeah. You don't look at Caitlyn Jenner and go, what an attractive, beautiful woman. Sorry. But Caitlyn Jenner yeah. basically says, uh, as I recall, that this is not something that should be done to children. I, I think that was the first um, response. But during the, his his attempt to run for governor of California, he got the trans activists came after him for saying that. So he, he, walked, ba- it back so he walked it back a bit. I see. So Jenner walked it back. Um one of the women, this really <laughs> made me, my eyebrows go up, go up. She said that insurance paid for her gender transition procedures, but not her detransition. Is that a common occurrence? 
I believe it is. I mean, Chloe Cole said that just the other day too. She's a young girl in California that had a double mastectomy as a teenager and all insurance paid for the removal of healthy, perfect breasts, but won't pay for the reconstructive surgery, which it, it, it's just back. It's, it's backwards. Yeah. <laughs> We're basically out of time, but I don't want to leave the impression that your film is a downer because it isn't. I think it's a, a clarion call uh, to wake up as to what's happening, but it's also a, a um, hopeful film. And here's a, a real quick clip from one of the young women. I wanted people to know that there is life after detransition, even if you've made serious physical changes. So I noticed uh, in the the uh, program that all three of the women were actually very hopeful, very um, enthusiastic about life, pursuing interests. Uh, even though they'd gone through some more and some less difficult uh, uh, detransition issues. For example, the uh, one woman has had a mastectomy and, and still has not had uh, reconstruction surgery. But they all three said there is hope, there is life after detransition. Is that the ultimate message of your film? Yeah, we really on purpose ended the film that way um, because we did want to see that show the audience that these women are thriving, that this didn't destroy them. It could have destroyed them, but it didn't. And they are, uh, I look at them now and the film's just been out for, you know, just a few weeks. Um, you know, they're still out there writing and speaking and testifying at hearings and, and supporting parents. I mean, Helena in particular really wants to work with parents who have children in this space. Um, so yeah. And, you know, we, we tell the audience what they're up to now. Um, and show pictures of them. You know, Grace is recently newly married and we show beautiful wedding pictures of her with her husband, who she said really carried her through this dark time in her life. Um, and, you know, Kat's back to doing her music and she just sings with a beautiful, deeper voice. <laughs> so at, at the very least, you're presenting uh, the side of this issue that is too often stifled in the media and in social discourse on, online. Yeah, they they don't want the narrative that this might be not a good idea to do this. And if we people, see that in all areas of, of our work, Wesley. <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, the only ones who present. <laughs> uh, if people are interested in seeing the film, how can they access the Detransition Diaries? It's on our Vimeo channel for the Center for Bioethics and Culture, so they can go to Vimeo. We also have all these clips that you've mentioned in the trailers on our YouTube channel. Um, I just want to put out a brag that the film has already been sold and seen in 35 countries. It's now available in Polish and in Spanish and in German because um, people all around the world are dealing with this issue. It's not just happening here. And we have people contacting us all the time saying, can they translate the script for us? And we quickly subtitle it, put it up, and make it available for different languages too. Well, congratulations on an important work and, and uh, keep on doing what you do. What's next for Jennifer Lull? Well, we signed a contract for a book. So the Detransition Diaries, Saving Our Sisters, is, we're about 48,000 words into a 50,000-word manuscript we have to deliver soon. Hey, way so, to go. Yeah, so the book will be coming out. I don't know whenever the publisher puts it out, but we have a manuscript we have to de deliver early December. So we're busy writing, writing, writing right now. Well, I'll let you get back to it, and I want to thank you for being on Humanize, and we'll talk to you again. Thank you, Wesley.
Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work, speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos, with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.